Good morning, Christ Community Church. Yeah, you can, you, can, you can do that louder. You can do that louder. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Very good, very good, much better. I uh, just want to make sure you guys are awake from your food comas from Thanksgiving. It looks like you've recovered. It's good. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel, and I serve as the pastor of high school ministries here at the Leewood campus. And uh, it's good to be with you all uh, this Sunday. Um, and and as, as I said, yeah, Thanksgiving. I hope you guys did have a good Thanksgiving. I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We actually had it, had it outside, which was kind of interesting, and it lucked out because it was very nice. So no one got you know pneumonia and all that, but lovely, lovely time. And just to pull the audience, who deep fries their turkeys? AKA, who's a genius? Anybody? <laughs> no one else deep fries their turkeys? Oh my gosh, really? Okay, we have one. Thank you, thank you. The headings, the headings there. I appreciate that. It, if you haven't, if you haven't had a deep fried turkey, you have not lived. That's just, that's, just, that's just a biological fact. I'm just saying that. But anyway, I do hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, we do have a lot to be thankful for, especially in light of um, you know, some, some tragic things that have happened in our, in our nation this, this month. And um, it's hard to talk about. But no, no one, um, not, not a soul in this room wasn't affected by the events of November 12th, or 16th, 2012. We will always remember where we were on that date, the day the issue, uh, the, the Twinkie was issued its first expiration date. Yeah, I can't believe you're laughing. You're still laughing, but the tragic event, and, and, and you know, I, I, like you, I'm, I'm reaching for answers, trying to figure out how to move forward. Can I switch to Little Debbie? I don't know. Is there a, is there a, you know, a ho-ho equivalent to the Swiss cake roll? It's not very good. I, I don't know what to do. I'm like you. I'm confused and lost. And, and I'm glad that you're here. You've come to a place of safety, of, of refuge, to, to, to figure out and navigate through this very, very tumultuous time in our nation's history. And we, we will move on. We will. For those of you who don't know, I'm not being really serious. I, I, I don't think it's very devastating. I mean, it's sad. I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a Hostess fan. I did love Hostess. And, but uh, the, in, in light of all of these kind of if you didn't know, Hostess has gone under. I don't know if I'm revealing it for the first time to anybody, but that's a sad thing. So if you need to leave now and cry, we have a crying room in the back. But, um, but it is a sad thing. And kind of in light of it, a lot of people try to make it more humorous. And there have been some pictures kind of on the internet like, we will never forget. We will never forget. Remember the Twinkie. And I just thought this was comical. And then, and then somebody apparently thinks that the Twinkie is on the level of the Ten Commandments. I don't know what it would look like if you derived your moral code from a fried cake, but, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. And then, then there's the funeral service of the Twinkie, you know, just, just laying to rest. Um, apparently somebody had to get a bite out of it before it was buried. Just kind of sad, but... Uh, and then it even got onto Twitter. One of my students uh, re- tweeted this out from another account. They said, why do banks get a bailout and Hostess doesn't? They've both been accused of causing inflation. It's not fair. <laughs> not fair. Not fair. And then this last one, this is probably my favorite one. What if the Twinkie company's lying so they can sell more Twinkies? <laughs> if you're not familiar with Keanu Reeves and his fabulous cinemata- cinem- cinematic, uh, no, he's not a really good actor. But anyway, if you're not familiar with Keanu Reeves, that's him. And this one was just entertaining. It's just, and and the, the thing, in addition to it being funny, uh, it's very telling, I think, of, of our culture that, that with, with every major event that, that takes place in our, in our nation, there is inevitably 
a conspiracy theory that's like attached to it. And if you probably heard, like some people, you may have friends like, well, their hostess is just doing that so they can boost sales and get people to buy more cupcakes. And you know, we all have those friends who is that conspiracy theory person, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's like, well, you know what, gas prices are going up because of moose. Or like, oh, I don't know. You know like they, they, they give some, some problem. They, they, you know, they label it on something. And so and we all have these conspiracy theory friends. And, and it's funny because, I mean, there are tons of conspiracy theories. They range from UFOs to JFK, from Elvis to Tupac. There's a ton of them. And for you kids who don't know who Elvis is, just ask your parents. And for you parents who don't know who Tupac is, just ask your, your kids. Uh, it's intergenerational ministry right there. But, but there are tons of conspiracies out there, and, and, and conspiracies kind of get a bad rap, and, and they, really, they really aren't bad. Really, what they mean is just that, that there is a story behind the story. A conspiracy is really just the idea that there's more going on behind the scenes than what we may fully realize or care to admit. And, and as we begin to transition into the season of Advent, next Sunday marks the beginning of Advent, which is the season uh, where we as a church celebrate and recognize the birth of Christ. And, and as we prepare for that time, uh, we, we're going to look at the story of Christmas through the lens of a conspiracy. That, and, and, and that may sound odd to say, like I said, because we tend to associate a negative connotation to conspiracy. But, but really, as I said, all it means is just that there's more to the story than what we may fully realize. And so as we prepare to transition to Advent next week, we wanted to begin our series this morning looking at the conspiracy of love. The idea that this very familiar story, this nostalgic narrative of Christ's birth is very well known to us, regardless of if you've even read the Bible or not, you've been, enough, been around enough nativity scenes and sung enough Christmas carols to know at least generally what the Christmas story is about. But what we may miss, while we may understand the facts of the Christmas story, what we can tend to miss in the busyness of the Christmas season is the greater why or, or as what we're going to call the, the so that's of the Christmas story. Jesus came, yes, as a demonstration of God's love, but for what purpose? So that, and that's what we're going to explore during this time in Advent. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at a text in the New Testament that is arguably one of the most significant passages of Scripture in the, in the epistle of, of Romans, um, in Romans chapter 8. And that may seem like an odd text to choose to teach the Christmas story from because the birth of Christ isn't referenced, you know, it's not really directly taught. And the reason why we're choosing Romans 8 is because, as I said, we aren't wanting to just share the the facts of the Christmas story, but explain the so that's of the Christmas story. Why did Jesus come? Yes, it is a beautiful narrative of God's love, sending his son to the world, but what does that mean and why and for what purpose? And as we explore this story, what we will find is that God's mission in the world began well before the manger and extends further beyond the resurrection. And so our plan is to to stay in Romans 8 throughout Advent. And I encourage you, if you've never read Romans or even particularly Romans 8, I encourage you to spend some time in it as we will be camped out in that text for the rest of of this time in Advent. So I do encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Romans chapter 8. But, but before we get into the text, I'd like to pray. Uh, so let, let's, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we come to you because you have first come to us. You are the God who not only sees us and knows us, but that, that you have drawn near to us. Lord, I ask now for your spirits to, 
to bless the teaching of your word, to open our eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that anything that is false that I say would be forgotten and dismissed and that, and that we would embrace the truth of your word. Lord, show us yourself. Help us to understand the vastness of this great story. We pray this all in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Well, before we jump into Romans 8, just to, to set a very brief context, it's kind of odd to jump into the middle of a book and teach from there. Uh, and so just to bring you up to speed, Romans 1 through 7, basically, Paul is laying out the gospel in great detail and precision. He is just laying out the good news of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. Then you get to Romans 7, and it's a very peculiar passage. At the end of Romans 7, there's this, there's this place where Paul... It, we don't know exactly who he's talking about. Some say he's, he's referring to himself. Some say he's just giving a hypothetical situation. But regardless, he's describing a person who is just wrecked by their sin, who is just ravaged by the sin within them. And, and it builds up to this point where Paul cries out in this, in this passage in verse 24 of chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And, and what Paul, I think, is getting at and trying to show us is that we all suffer from sin. And, and re- whether you label it as that or not, we all have things in our life that plague us, that, that ail us, that, that keep us from living the life that we know that we want and maybe even know that we could live. We all have some moral inability, some crippling habit that keeps us from progressing in the way that we want. And what Paul is saying is that this thing is sin, and we all suffer from it, without exception. You see, sin is not just this abstract spiritual reality that floats around. It's not something that like Christian parents scare their kids with. It's a real thing that manifests itself in our lives. Sometimes in seemingly small ways like gossip or, or, or arrogance or greed, but, but even in more evil ways like hatred and murder and adultery and war. And so what Paul is saying is that this sin, this darkness, this evil, and its potential for great evil is within all of us. And we all probably at some point, maybe we haven't said it in these words, but we've all cried out, I am a mess. I am, I am not living my life how I want to. I, I cannot get beyond this problem. I feel enslaved and trapped. And this is where Paul is wanting us to sit in this tension for a bit. But he doesn't stay there very long. He quickly moves to this promising refrain refrain in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He creates this tension of we're all in sin. We all suffer from it. We all are plagued by various problems in our life. And whether you label it as sin or not, it is sin. But Paul quickly transitions to say, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In this moment, Paul is giving hope to our hopelessness. He's giving help to our helplessness and he's providing rescue to our lostness. And it is with this very hopeful delivery that Paul transitions into Romans chapter eight. And it is here where we're gonna stay for this morning, looking just at the first 11 verses of chapter eight. And what I wanna do this morning is just look at three things I want us to look at this conspiracy, this conspiracy of love. I want us to look at it, the conspiracy revealed, the conspiracy accomplished, and the conspiracy applied. 
Conspiracy revealed, accomplished, and applied. I don't know why I'm doing this, but you, know, you just have them visually in front of you now. But the first is the conspiracy revealed. And I want to read verses 1 through 2 from Romans 8. As Paul says, so he transitions here and he proclaims boldly, without exception here, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now what Paul is trying to, he's transitioning here from spending all this time talking about the gospel, our brokenness, our need for Christ, to now describing what life looks like lived in this deep conspiracy of love. And he begins, as I said, by boldly declaring there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now the big implication is that, well, then we, we must have been under condemnation at one point. If those who are in Christ are no longer under it, well, it means that they must have been under it at one point. And this is something we don't like talking about. We like the idea of God's love, grace, mercy. You know, the, the, the story of Christmas is, is God sending his son to love us. And yes, that's true. It is nothing less than that. But it is for sure much more than that. And you see, we cannot fully grasp and embrace and rest in the love of God without fully understanding the condemnation that we deserve. You see, to say that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die on a cross makes no sense without an understanding of judgment. If I said to you, I love you so much that I'm gonna bash my hand in with a hammer, you'd be like, you, you've got problems, I think. You know? like, that's not an act of love. That doesn't display love at all unless the hammer was intended for your hand. And if I intercede, that then becomes an act of love. And so by us avoiding condemnation in these, these passages and, and talking about God's wrath, we don't like that. We are actually distancing ourselves further and further away from fully delighting in the riches of God's love. And so Paul is declaring there is now no condemnation. We are freed from God's condemnation because as I said earlier, we all suffer from sin to some, in some way, shape, or form. We all have things that plague us, but in addition to the internal struggle that we face of, and the shame and guilt that sin brings, we also, each and every one of us, we stand condemned before God. We stand condemned because he is holy and we are not. We have failed to live in accordance with his standard, and because of that, we stand condemned. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He declares boldly, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is trying to show us that we are, we are freed from the demands that God had put upon us. As Paul says in verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What this means is that God's law, his standard of perfection, does not provide for us hope. Is his standard of holiness is what declares this is how you must live. In Leviticus 19.2, God says that you are to be holy as I am holy. And so he expects this standard. And rather than it being a, a message of, hey, I can do this. I can actually be good enough. It, in, in the end, declares us worthy of judgment because we, we see in comparison to God's standard, we can't match up. We can't be good enough. The law of God essentially can be boiled down to this. Game over. It's, it's, it's over. You don't have a chance. You are hopeless and you fall very, very short. 
But, but the good news is that while the law condemns us, while the law says you must perform and match up, but can't, the good news of the gospel is that Christ has. That while we could not do what the law demanded, Christ did for us. While we could not be good enough in and of ourselves, Christ was good enough. This is the deeper story of Christmas. Yes, God sent his son to show us his love, but more than that, he sent his son to suffer in our place, to be our condemnation. Because the law condemns, but the gospel frees. Or as Paul says, it is the spirit of Christ in us that frees us. As, as a way of an analogy, it's, it's like an x-ray. Um, if, you've, if you've ever had an x-ray, the, the law essentially functions like an x-ray. Shortly after my wife Megan and I got married, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And actually, how do you pronounce the capital of Louisville? Is it Louisville or Louisville? Louisville, right? I've always heard it pronounced Frankfurt. Yeah, I thought that was funny. But anyway, um, it was much funnier in my head. But anyway, so we lived in Louisville because it's Frankfurt. Yeah, anyway, so we lived in Louisville. And shortly after we were married, I went away for a weekend to play in an ultimate Frisbee tournament. And I actually broke my collarbone which is pretty crazy. You're like, how did you do that playing some hippie sport without shoes? And it's much more intense than that, okay? All right? We'll talk later. But, but I broke my collarbone, but I didn't know how bad it was until I went to the ER and I got an x-ray. And lo and behold, I had cleanly broken my clavicle uh, in two places. So this two-inch piece of my clavicle was like floating around in my body. And it was be- I did not see how broken I was inside until the x-ray revealed it. In the same way, God's law, it has no power to heal us. It only reveals brokenness. God's law only reveals brokenness. It cannot heal brokenness. And so when, God, when, when Paul says we are freed from the burden of the law, from its tyranny, from what it demands of us, what Paul is saying is that Jesus suffers in our place, has become our righteousness so that we don't have to be good enough we are freed from the law and its demands. Uh, a few years ago, I was thumbing through a hymnal, which I don't know why I was doing this, but I, I came across a hymn I'd never heard before, never sung before in church, by a guy by the name of Philip Bliss, and it's called Free from the Law. And it just, it captures so beautifully what I think Paul is communicating in Romans 8 here. He says this, Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. We were cursed by the law and bruised by the fall. Grace has redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross and the burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once and for all. Now we are free. There is no condemnation. Jesus provides a more perfect salvation. Come unto me, O hear his sweet call. Come, and he saves us once and for all. This is the good news of Christmas. Yes, Jesus came to show us his love. Yes, Jesus came to rescue and forgive us. But beyond that, in addition to that, Christ came to be condemned for us. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. We are no longer condemned if we are in Christ because Christ was condemned for us. This is the story of Christmas. Now we see this conspiracy revealed a bit more. Now I want to transition and look at what is this, how is this conspiracy then accomplished? How is it accomplished in our lives? 
And, and when, we, when we get to verses 3 and 4, we see that, that this conspiracy is accomplished by the great conspirator, God himself. The triune God is the one who is responsible for accomplishing all that Paul is talking about in Romans 8. And, and we, we may think that, that it began at the manger, that it all began when Jesus was born, but really this plan of rescue, of salvation, of restoration can be traced all the way back to Genesis. The story of Christmas does not begin necessarily at the birth of Christ, but it can be tracked all the way to Genesis 3, where right after sin has entered the world, God is condemning and giving his judgment, and he's speaking to the serpent who is the the representation of Satan, and in Genesis 3.15, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." This is not describing some bizarre relationship between men and snakes. What God is saying is he's giving us a foreshadow, a preview, a teaser trailer, if you will, of what he will accomplish through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We see the Christmas story, as I said, begins well before the manger, and we see it being declared in Genesis 3. You see, there's so much more to this familiar story There's so much more than just baby Jesus in the manger and shepherds and angels and all that stuff is great. But when we just get so focused in on the facts and the nostalgia and the the nativity sets, I'm not, not, not bashing them. We have like 19 in our house. I'm not bashing them. But what I'm saying is, is that we have to see there's so much more to the story than what we may fully realize. And so in verses three and four, what we see is that God is the one accomplishing this conspiracy. Paul says in verses three and four, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God is the one doing what we could not do in and of ourselves, what the law could not accomplish. It could not make us holy. As I said, it only reveals brokenness. It does not heal brokenness. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, the triune God is at work in this accomplishment. We see God sending the Son. Why and for what purpose? To redeem us, to transform us, and to get us to the point where the spirit now lives in us and we walk in the spirit. The full trinity is at work. Christmas is more than just baby Jesus. We see all of the triune God at work in accomplishing this conspiracy of love. And this is where we see that so that. Jesus came, why? So that he could destroy the penalty and power of sin. God sent his son so that in the likeness of sinful flesh, he could condemn sin so that its power and penalty would not be over us, that we would not suffer from it anymore. But there is more to the story even than that. That in addition to Jesus coming to rescue us and accomplish the work of paying our penalty and being our condemnation, we see that there is an even another, in addition to that, another so that. The ultimate so that of Christmas is to transform both us as people and all of creation. And we will see this more laid out in Romans 8. But what we see is the bigger story here is that it's more than just being freed and forgiven. There is so much more happening in the Christmas story. The ultimate so that behind Christmas, behind God sending his son, is to make 
you and I in all things holy. Christ came to reclaim and to remake everything that has been wrecked and ravaged by sin. This was accomplished by God himself. So now as we continue on through Romans, we've seen this conspiracy revealed. We see that it's bigger than what we may fully realize and admit or or care to, to see. We've seen that it's accomplished in the work of God himself. And lastly, where I want to just spend some time here is is looking at this conspiracy applied. What is it? How is it applied and lived out and worked out into our lives? Starting in verse 5, Paul begins this distinction, describing life in the spirit and life in the flesh. And he's just kind of speaking factually. You know, he's like, this is, this is what life in the spirit looks like. This is what life in the flesh looks like. This is, this is who we are. There is not really a middle ground. And in describing this, he is painting a rather despairing picture of, of those that walk in the flesh. Paul says that it is, it is, it is not, we are not capable of pleasing God. In verses 7 and 8, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It is hostile. Other translations say that, that, that it is an enemy of God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Once again, Paul is painting this very desperate situation. We don't have the ability within us to please God, to honor him, to submit to his law. Indeed, it cannot. But what Paul then goes on to say is that those who walk in the spirit both can and will. They both can and will obey God and please him and walk in accordance with his ways. That we have not just been freed and forgiven. This is, this is the bigger story here. That we have not just been, if we are in Christ, we have not just been freed and forgiven, we have been empowered and enabled. And another way of saying it is that we have not just been saved from something, but to something. Yes, we've been saved from sin, from death, from its penalty, from the condemnation that we deserve by God's law, but we've also been saved to something. We've been transformed. We no longer walk in the flesh, we walk in the spirit. One of my uh, professors at seminary, Tom Schreiner, in in talking about this passage, he says this just very succinctly, but it gives us us a deeper understanding of, of the so that of the Christmas story. Those freed from the curse of the law are now liberated. But it's not liberated, period. We are liberated to keep the law's commands. Yes, we should celebrate and rejoice in the fact that if we are in Christ, we have been freed and forgiven, but we have been freed and forgiven to now live a new life in the Spirit. And notice that Paul, in in verses 5 through 8, he's just kind of describing things very factually. Life in the spirit, life in the flesh, this is what it is. But then he gets to verse 9, and he gets personal. And he looks at you, I mean, he doesn't look at you, but he speaks personally and says, You, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so Paul, in this moment, He's trying to instill motivation to to live in accordance with the Spirit. But notice that he he doesn't like challenge them or charge them. He doesn't say, hey, you guys have been forgiven and freed. You really ought to walk in the Spirit. It's really something you should do. And while that wouldn't be wrong, and Paul has done that elsewhere in Scripture, the way Paul tries to get people to change and to live this new life 
is he appeals not to their innate ability, but to their innate identity. He says to them, he doesn't say, hey, you really ought to walk in the spirit. You really ought to live this way. He says to those who walk in the spirit, he just, he just says, he doesn't say, hey, you need to walk in the spirit. He just says, hey, you walk in the spirit. That's what you do. That's who you are. You see, the problem that, that I think Christians have with the, the battle of sin is not just an issue of morality. It is an issue of identity. That when we find ourselves constantly falling into sin and, and falling into the same traps, our ultimate problem is not that we are immoral, but that we are forgetting at the core who we are in Christ. Paul is trying to appeal to their identity and not their moral ability. Another way of saying this is that Paul, Paul is trying to show us that, that we do not become children of God by imitating God. We don't imitate God and then God declares us his children. Like, oh, you have, you have done enough to be like me. I will now declare you my child. It's the opposite. We are his children. If we are in Christ, we are his children. And we must live like it. it, it, it it's the product of who we are as his children. Martin Luther says it very well. He says, it is not imitation that makes sons. It is sonship that makes imitators. We do not get it the other way around. It is not the case of, man, I've, I've been doing all these things. I've been trying to be good. I've been trying to walk in the spirit. I hope that I can become a child of God at some point or earn that status. It is not the case with God. He declares us his children. He frees us from condemnation. He gives us his spirit. And now we walk in the spirit. And when we don't, we are failing to bring to mind the promise that Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. The Christian must daily be reminded and brought back to that simple but very profound truth that Christ is in me. And that we do not accomplish and defeat sin by pulling ourselves up by our moral and spiritual bootstraps, but that we appeal more to the identity of who we are in Christ. That is what Paul is getting at. And we so often reverse that order and we think, if I could be good enough, if I could imitate God, if I could be like him, then I could earn that status. Then I could be freed from my burden and this feeling of imprisonment and enslavement to my sin. But no, it's that God declares us his children. We are free and so now we are to live like it. Another way of saying it is my, my daughter Lula, she's four and a half, and uh, earlier this summer I took her out to play disc golf, which is like golf with a frisbee. It's a very simple way of saying it. It's much more profound than that. There's a conspiracy to that too. But the, we went out to play disc golf, and, and we came up to the tee pad, and I was about to throw, and, I, and Lula picked up, I have a bag of discs, and she picks one up and, and threw it and just went, ugh. I just looked and I was like, what is that? So I was about to throw again and then she picked up another one and then threw it and just went, ugh. <laughs> I was just like, what is happening here? And I'm just, just kind of ignoring it. But then I realized she's imitating me. Because inevitably when I, when I throw, I, I, I'm very disappointed with my throw. So I throw and I'm like, ugh. And so she just thinks, oh, that's how you play disc golf. You, you, you pick up, you just throw, ugh, wee, and you, you just keep doing it. And... And so that's how she just picks up on this sport just by watching me. 
Now, in that moment, I don't declare, I don't go get like, you know, some legal document like, you will now be my daughter. You have imitated me well. I will now take you on to be my own. She is my child. She is my child, and she is now acting like it. Whether right or wrong, she imitates me. And, and so in, in, this, in this comparison, what we have to see and what we have to understand is that, or, or, or think of it another way, like for you younger people, like when, when people say to you, like, you are, you are your mother's child, or, or you are definitely your father's son, you know, they're not stating an obvious biological fact about you. You know, like, you are your mother's son. You know, like, it's true. I saw a report. You know, they're not saying that. They're, they're declaring something about your quality, about your character. You are living like your father. And sometimes that's said good, sometimes that's said bad, but, but what, regardless, they're describing a quality of your father, of your mother, that you are now living out. In the same way, this is what Paul is trying to bring us to, to remind us who are in Christ that the same spirit, in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Our ultimate problem, I'll say it again, is not an issue of morality, but an issue of identity. It would be like this. It would be like Superman suffering from amnesia. It would be him walking around, forgetting that he has the power to defeat Lex Luthor, his nemesis. All the while, he has the power to do it, but he is living like a normal guy who wears spandex under his clothes. He may not, I don't know why, like, maybe he doesn't figure that out. But, but he's, he's living this way, and he totally forgets who he is. In the same way, those that are in Christ, we are not just we are not just like given a new, a new way to live and we're not motivated. The spirit of Christ, the same spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in us. And we must be reminded of that. And we must declare boldly to ourselves that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We must remember that and appeal to that rather than to our ability and our effort. We must appeal to the spirit that is in us. Uh, in his book, uh, The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung, it's a great little book. I encourage you to, to pick it up. But he's, he talks about, in a chapter he calls, entitled, Be Who You Are, he describes this very phenomenon. He says, in effect, God says to us, because you believe in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, I have joined you to Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. He's holy, so you're holy. Your position right now is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, and seated in my holy heaven. Now live like it. Live in that reality. Understand who you are in Christ. And then he concludes by saying, it's also the long way of saying, be who you are. And this is so hard for us because we so want to take credit for things. We, we think that we can get beyond these things that tempt us and plague us. We think that we can work our way out of our sin and out of the problems in our life. But remember that sin is not just something that produces relational discord and, and social unrest. It actually makes us less human. It eats away at who we are, and this is why Christ has come, not just to free us and forgive us, but to remake us, to declare and remake everything holy. 
This is the greater story of Christmas. It is more than just Jesus in the manger. It is more than just us being loved and forgiven. It is God coming to remake and reclaim everything wrecked and ravaged by the fall. So in closing, as, as, we, as we continue to prepare for Advent and, and celebrate and recognize what God has done for us, in us, and through us in Christ, I, I just want to give a few just questions of reflection to think about and process. And the first is, is the, the most simple but still very profound is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you come to, to place yourself under the reign and rule of Christ Jesus? Is he Lord and Savior of your life? Have you come to treasure and trust him, see him and savor him? Is he Lord and Savior of your life? If he is, the second question, are you then living under condemnation still? Do you still feel this burden of I'm not good enough, that I need to be doing these things, that I need to, to make sure that I'm, I've got all of my religious ducks in a row and I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I can? If you feel this burden of the law, you've got to hear that Paul says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've got to believe that Jesus meant it when he said it is finished, that he has paid the penalty in full. It's not a layaway option. It is done. Thirdly, if you are in Christ and if you are living free of condemnation, this third question of are you being who you are? Are you living in light of the reality that the spirit of Christ, the same spirit who raised him from the dead is alive in you? Do you live with the understanding that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you? Do you live with the understanding that it is, it is greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world? Are you being who you are? As we've said, this, this story, there's so much more to it than what we, what we see at face value. That God, yes, he wants to display his love in sending his son. But he did it so that he might free us and forgive us. But ultimately so that he might make all things holy. Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, entered into our unholy world to become our unholy sin. So that he might make us holy. As I mentioned earlier, we are all plagued and enslaved by various sins various temptations, various moral failures. We all feel this tension of we aren't who we are supposed to be. We all feel this tension that the, the, the lead singer of Switchfoot describes, the tension between who you are and who you could be, between how it is and how it should be. But more than that, more than longing for, for a sense of alleviating this tension and getting it away from us, we long for a newness of life, a life that deep down we hope is possible, but so often convince ourselves it's just a pipe dream. It's not really real. But more than this, this life being real, it is possible. It is possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your word Lord, your spoken word, your revealed word, but more than that, we praise you, Lord, for the living word, for Christ Jesus, the one who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, and who will return for us. Lord, we thank you that, that for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. And Lord, I ask for your spirit to encourage us with that. 
Lord, for those who are not in Christ, I encourage you to proclaim to them the goodness that stands before them, that they can be freed of sin, of guilt, of shame, of judgment, by resting in Christ, by placing themselves under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise and hope that the Christmas story brings to us. We pray this all in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.